Well, it's super good to be uh, here with you all. Doug, you kind of stole the words out of my mouth because uh, I was uh, going to begin by just telling everybody that about our relationship. So I get to do that now. I got to think of something else. But uh, yeah, Doug and I were office mates for uh, two and a half years, and it was pretty awesome. And here, here's what I hope you know and what I'm sure you are, are learning, especially if you, you're newer here, is that Doug is a man who loves Jesus and he loves the local church. Uh, in sharing an office with someone for a couple of years, you get to share the ups and downs of pastoral ministry. Uh, you get to see when they're frustrated. You get to see what they do in their quiet time. You kind of get a, a peek behind the curtain, if you will. And so I'm just, I'm pleased to report that, that the man that you see up here is the man that I got to know over the last two and a half years. And so, uh, Doug, I'm thankful that for your ministry, um, I am sad <laughs> for us because we miss the pains very much, but uh, I'm thankful for this church and for this region that the gospel gets to uh, go out clearly and be preached every Sunday here. Um, well, my name, like I said, is Gabe, and uh, uh, my wife's Taryn and, and four kids, and uh, it's kind of been fun being back in Oregon. I'm actually, it's hard to say where I'm from because we've kind of, I've lived all over the Pacific Northwest, and so I don't know where it really feels like home, but I went to high school at San Barlow in Gresham, Oregon, if anybody knows where that is. Uh, my wife and I met when she was at University of Portland, and I was at Warner Pacific College, so we also have, have that little connection, and then we were married in Boring, Oregon. Does anybody know where Boring, Oregon is? Yeah, okay, so that's where we were married, and so it was really cool when we uh, came back into town, we had a chance to, for the very first time, show our kids um, where mom and dad got married, where it all, where it all began, you know, and so they were uh, less thrilled than we were, but uh, it was still cool to get to show them, hey, here's a little hill, and here's, you know, this, and it was an outdoor wedding at my uncle and aunt's house, and so, you know, here's how we had it all set up, and uh, it was pretty cool, and so when you, when you do something like that, that was 14 years ago, and so when you get to do something like that, uh, especially because we were driving, you begin to be contemplative, reflective, and, and thinking about your marriage, thinking about what God has brought you through. And uh, we, we were actually at a wedding last weekend, and it stirred up some of the same feelings as we were at the wedding last weekend. And uh, I got to admit, I was a little surprised by some of the feelings that stirred up, okay? It stirred up some jaded feelings, if I'm honest, okay? Because we were the old people at the wedding. Uh, I'm not... I don't think, maybe I'm getting there and I'm just in denial, but I'm, you know, late 30s. I don't consider myself an old person, but at this wedding, I certainly was, okay? Everybody was kind of early 20s, all the friends were early 20s, and uh, we were sitting there, and here's where the jaded sort of side of me came out, okay? We were sitting there, and they were doing toasts, and the toast went a little something like this. You are going to be the best husband, best father, okay, then on the, on the bride side, you were going to be the best mother, the best wife, I knew that he was the one when you couldn't stop giggling on the phone, okay, and I was like, really, like, that's, that's how you, you guys haven't even been married for an hour, how do you know that they're going to be the best mother or the best father, what are you talking about, okay, and I'm sitting, my wife's like jabbing me, like, stop, you know, like, <laughs> this is my inner monologue, okay, and, uh, and then as, as we were listening to more of it, I started just going like, okay, here, here's when I'll believe that you're in love. What I'll, when I'll believe that you're in love is when one of you, the show that you're watching together, that you're binging on Netflix, one of you watches ahead without the other one, okay? And like you still say together, I'll believe you're in love, okay? Th th that's one of the, the signs to me personally. Uh, if, if you are one of those people that uh, when you 
get woken up at two o'clock in the morning. Okay, if you want me to believe that you're a good father or a good mother, when you get woken up at two o'clock in the morning because one of your kids threw up and your spouse gets out of bed with you and goes to clean that up, then I'll believe you're a good father and a good mother, okay? Like, I need to see this put to the test before I am ready to declare you are a good father and a good mother, okay? When you find out that your spouse snores every night and you still love them, I'll believe you're a good, a good husband or a good wife. And, and the reality is that we, we say these things, and, and my wife and I weren't any different, okay? We were also, on our wedding day, made lots of vows and lots of promises, and um, they, they were sincerely meant, but if I'm honest, they were a little bit naive. They were, they were sincere, but they were a little bit naive. They were a little bit immature. We meant them, but as time goes on, those vows really get put to the test, right? Like when I sin against you, will you still love me? Will you still forgive me? Will you still be gracious to me? When I'm, and I'm, when I'm slow in my sanctification, right, when, I, when this thing that I did at the beginning of our marriage, I'm still doing 10 years and 15 years and 20 years in, will you still be gracious with me? Will you still love me patiently? For those of us that are married in the room, that that, that's where the rub really comes in, right? Will I still love that person? Will I still be merciful to that person when that's what's happening? When you begin a journey individually or with others, whether that be marriage or parenting or college or new career, it's natural for us to go into that new experience with certain expectations. But because we are new to that particular thing, or, or perhaps because of, of wrong expectations, it's really easy for those ideas and those thoughts to be immature, for them not to yet be tempered by the, the test of time, and, and reality hasn't really yet fully set in. And the reality is that this is not unique to marriage or to college or to uh, a new career, parenting. So what does this have to do with our passage today? We're going to be in Ephesians 4. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, 11. And what I want you to see is that the Apostle Paul tells us, he's really he's telling the church in Ephesus, he's going to tell them what, it is, what is necessary in order for them to grow up. He's going to tell them what is necessary for them to go from an immature people to maturity he's going to tell them what they what they need to hear not because it's it's uh it's new or novel but he's going to tell them what they need to hear because he cares about them and he wants to see them grow up into all that christ has planned for them to be as the people of god he's going to tell them what's necessary in order for them to mature not just individually but corporately as a church body because here's the thing naivete unrealistic expectations and immature thinking if if the church doesn't develop a vision corporately for how they are going to mature for how they are going to deepen in their faith for how they are going to become disciples of jesus christ then what paul is going to tell us is they are just hoarding disaster they are they are simply awaiting being destroyed being tossed about and so Paul doesn't want that to happen to the church in Ephesus, and I don't think he would want that to happen to the branch either. And so we are going to look at Ephesians 4, 11, beginning chapter, or chapter 4, verse 11, and see what would it take, what would it take for the branch in 2021 
to mature together as a congregation in the way that God intended. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to start verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, do you want to know my job description as a pastor? Do you want to know Pastor Doug's job description? It's right here, okay? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Shepherds and teachers, the word shepherd there is just another word for pastor. So what he's, he's saying here, Paul is saying that, that he, who's he? Jesus. That's who he's talking about. So the job description that, that we have as pastors wasn't our idea. The job description that we have as pastors was a job description that was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the job description we have is to equip the saints, that's you, every Christian is called a saint, okay, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So here's what that means. The work of ministry is not done only and exclusively by pastors. The work of ministry is meant to be done by the people of God, the church. And our job, our responsibility is to equip you. So you have an important role in the life of the church. You have an important role in this church. If, if you think that, and some of us grew up in churches like this, if you think that the work of ministry, that the pastors, can, you come in, you sort of take whatever the pastor has to say for you, you, you're meant to then just kind of take that, carry that into your week so that you have a really good week. Okay, that's partially true. But that becomes really individualistic, doesn't it? Like if you're here and the only, the, the only way that you're thinking about this is how does this apply to my heart? How, how am I then supposed to do this? What is this supposed to look like for me? And, it, and it's primarily about your life getting better, you following Jesus better, and it all just stays really individualistic, okay? Then you're not really understanding what it means to be equipped for the work of ministry. You're not really understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ because a disciple of Christ is a disciple that makes disciples. And so when Paul says this here in verse uh, 12, he says to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Right? You're to be equipped for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Now, how, how long should we focus on this? How long should a church focus on, on this particular vision and idea? Sometimes we, as churches, we get restless. Okay, I don't know if your church is like this, but some churches do get like that, okay? We get restless. We begin going like, okay, what's the, what's the next thing? What's the program we need to add? What's the, how, how do we get bigger? What does this look like? What's the new cool thing that, that we need to do as a church? How long are we supposed to be focused on equipping the saints for the work of ministry? Look at verse 12, or verse 13, rather. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So how long should we be, be busy doing this? Until Jesus comes back, basically, okay? Until everybody has attained the unity of, until everybody loves Jesus, everybody's united around Jesus, everybody uh, understands who Jesus is, everybody is fully mature. You know what we call that as pastors? Job security. Like, that, that's, that's, if you're a ministry leader, are there any, like, community group leaders or people that lead in discipleship or anything in here? 
couple of you, right? He, here's the thing. Is everybody in your community group mature? I, I hope the answer is no. Otherwise, my church has a, our church has a problem, okay? I'm hoping your answer is no, not yet. Okay, that's good. You still have job security also, right? If, if everybody in your community group has not yet reached mature manhood, the knowledge of the Son of God, they have not all attained to the unity of the faith, then there's still work to be done. Still work to be done. Basically, what Paul is saying is either uh, Jesus is going to return or you're going to keel over. That's when you're done. That's when we're done doing this particular task. You're to be equipped for the work of ministry until everyone knows and loves and reflects and thinks like and acts like Jesus. Why? Why is it so important for Christ's church to be built up in this way? Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know what's cute? What's cute is when a little kid is learning to eat, okay? And they don't yet know how to use, like, forks and knives and spoons. They're not yet cultured. <laughs> and, like, their first birthday, they sit there and they have cake all over their face and everybody goes, oh, so cute, okay? Our kids, I always love to watch them eat spaghetti. <laughs> it's just, like, a mess, okay? It's all over their face and it wasn't always that fun to clean up, but it was, uh, was kind of cute, right? You know what's not cute? A full-grown adult eating like a one-year-old. Okay? If anybody, if you go on a date with somebody and they bypass the utensils and they just go right to digging their face into the, like, you're free to walk out on that date, okay? It's not cute anymore, right? If a child acts like a child, it's okay. It's to be expected. It's cute. When an adult, when, when a man or a woman of God is childish in their thinking, when they're immature in their thinking, when they're childish, they're vulnerable. It's a real danger. Paul tells us that they can be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You just get the sense that there's no real stability of thought, that they're just, anybody can come and, and blow them whichever which way. Men who are infantile in their thinking aren't cute, they're fast. Uh, women who are infantile in their thinking aren't cute, they're sad. He, here's the, uh, I, I want to give you some examples. I want to add some flesh to this for you. What does it look like when a man is acting like a child? Now, in, as men and women, sometimes we act like children in really similar ways, and sometimes it comes out a little bit differently because here's the reality. God made men and women different from one another, and that's good. That's part of his good created order. Because he made us different, sometimes our, our, our childishness comes out in different ways. It comes out a lot uh, in a lot of similar ways, but it comes out in some really different ways as well. So for men, I think one of the things that God has called men to do is be those who take responsibility. God has called men to be those who, who take responsibility, who sacrificially pour themselves out for the good of others, who lead through service who are protective, who, who care for others, even before themselves. So childishness, I think, in men 
often looks like only caring about number one. Selfishness. It looks like just caring about your life and your needs and what you want and whatever makes you happy and whatever pleases you. And in the meantime, your church, your family, your neighbor misses out. I think often it looks like you expecting somebody else to take responsibility for the growth and maturity of this church. If, if the branch is anything like any church I've ever been a part of and the church that I pastor in, then here's what often happens. People come in and they go, no, I totally agree, pastor, with what you're saying. I just think it's somebody else's job. And the, the truth is, for men, one of the things that we're called to do is take responsibility. So that means take responsibility, yes, of our own lives, take responsibility in our families, take responsibility in our marriages, and in our churches. To say, this church will be a gospel preaching, a gospel proclaiming, a church that lives out the gospel, in part because I am determined for it to be so. I will do everything that's in my ability and everything that's in, within my gifting and Holy Spirit power to see that occur in this church because if this church rises and falls it's not dependent on only doug or only on the the church staff it's dependent on me as well i think a lot of times when men are are dodging responsibility it looks like when they're childish in their thinking it looks like your, your sin being the fault of of your parents or your sin being the fault of somebody else I wasn't raised quite good enough. I was angry because they made me angry. They were difficult. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at porn because God hasn't brought me a spouse. As soon as he brings me a spouse, that'll be over with. Or if you're married, uh, my, my porn habit is really only there because, you know, my, my wife isn't quite who she used to be. She doesn't look like that. See, all of that is a way of just dodging responsibility. All that is a, is a way of of saying, I'm not responsible for my own heart, somebody else is. That's childish. What about women? What does it look like when women are being childish in their thinking? Now, now here's the truth. A lot of churches are okay with a pastor kind of beating up on men, okay? A lot of churches. People start to get a little bit like, what are you going to say if you're talking to women? But as pastors, I'm not just responsible. Doug isn't just responsible for pastoring the men in this congregation. He was responsible for pastoring the women in this congregation as well. From this pulpit, God's word speaks to women also. Are you ready for this? Okay. The Vatican did a, a study where they uh, interviewed and they looked at confessions and, and things that people had, women had to say specifically in confessionals. And what they found is that women self-reported that their, their main struggles with sin were pride and envy. Now, maybe that's you, maybe that's not. But this was the, the sort of main struggles that women reported having. Well, what does that look like for a woman? Well, one, one thing it could look like is social media. Right, hopping on social media and comparing your life continually to, to, to that person, to that family. Looking at your spouse and comparing them to somebody else's spouse and saying, gosh, I wish my husband looked like that. I wish my life was like that. You know what that is? That's envy. That's sin. For wives, maybe that's looking at your husband and saying, gosh, I would do such a better job of leading the family than he is. That's pride. 
See, these, these struggles in, in your heart are not just shortcomings. It's sin. It's childish. It's immature. God has called you to be so much more than to keep up with the Kardashians. He, he has a bigger vision for your life, men and women of God, than for you to try to, be, to, to, try to keep up with others, to look at others, for, to understand your identity according to others. He wants more for you than that. He wants more for the men and the women of God in this church than that your lust and your selfishness and your pride and your envy be something that keeps you from the mission that he has for you. The vision that God has for your life is better than anything that the world sells to you. If you are immature in your thinking, then here's what will often happen. False doctrine, false teachers, those with cunning, deceitful schemes, they will come along and they will speak in such a way that your sinful desires gravitate toward that. And pretty soon you'll think, no, I've just developed, I've just grown in my theology. But really the origin of that was your own sinful desires for something, and then you looked for theological language to slap on top of that so that you could justify your new beliefs. See, if you're tossed about by the waves, by every wind of doctrine, if anybody with human cunning has the ability to lead you astray, you know how it most often is going to find its way in is your own sinful desires. So what's the antidote, Paul? How, how do we, and put myself in this category as well, how do we, as the people of God, how do we grow up? How do we become the kind of men and women who are mature in our thinking, who can resist demonic lies and false doctrines and false teachers? What do we do? Verse 15. Rather... Paul's contrasting here. He's saying, instead of this, tossed about, here's what, what Paul tells us to do instead. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we'll come back to that, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So he's talking about the saints there, holding the body together, the body that's been equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what's the antidote? The antidote to the problem that, that Paul presents to us is speaking the truth in love to one another. How are you doing with that? Speaking the truth in love to one another. This is Jesus' good and sovereign plan to mature his church, his people. Now, in, in my experience, uh, people tend to be good at one or the other, okay? They tend to be either pretty good at the, the speaking truth part, but there's not a whole lot of love there. This is your flamethrower type, the people that look at you and go like, is it true? It's not my problem if you're offended, okay? Like, they're pretty good at speaking the truth, but there's not a lot of love. And then you have folks that are, are generally pretty good at at speaking love, right? They're really affirming and they're really encouraging and, and everybody walks out of that conversation and goes, gosh, I just felt really loved. But the truth is, in not every conversation do you just need truth bombs. In not every conversation do you just need to be affirmed and encouraged. Sometimes you need to be admonished. Sometimes you need to be rebuked. 
sometimes you need to bear with those who are faint-hearted and you need to be gentle with those who are, who are suffering. We don't need to just look for the little bit of sin that's in there. Maybe you need to attend to their suffering. We tend to be good at either speaking the truth or loving, loving one another. If, if, if you are one of those who gravitates towards speaking the truth, let me talk to you for just a minute, okay? If you're one of those people that uh, you're good at winning a theological debate, you are good at, you have no problem just cutting to the chase and telling people exactly the issue and, and sort of don't care about the impact, right? Told about whatever your intention was, my intention was just to give you the truth, unvarnished, okay? We have a lot of that in our culture, by the way. Here's, here's the thing about that. If your truth is your truth, it's a problem, right? If, because then it just becomes your opinion. So there's a lot of people that they, they claim to be speaking the truth, but it's really just their opinion. It's just really their thought. Because truth that isn't conformed to, isn't confined, restrained by the word of God, isn't truth. So a lot of us, we, we like saying our opinions as we see it, but if we're actually caring about the, the content of what truth is meant to look like, then truth is something that is cloaked in, that is, that is robed in love. It means the truth that we speak is primarily because we love that person and we want them to know and love Jesus. That's why we speak the truth. Who speaks the truth to you in your life? Believe it or not, it can be hard, especially in the Pacific Northwest, to find people that are willing to tell you the truth. I think in the Northwest, we actually do a better, better job of just being loving. We, we are pretty comfortable as a people, generally, because it doesn't cost us a whole lot, to just be affirming and caring, loving. But here's the thing, loving that is according to your view, or loving that is according to your neighbor's view, isn't loving at all. Just like truth, love needs to be conformed by, it needs to be connected to how, what scripture says it looks like to love somebody. And guess what? Part of what scripture says it looks like to love somebody is to tell them the truth. So that means there's going to be times where you sit with someone and it's going to be the wounds of a friend and that's going to be the most loving thing you can say to that person at that time is to wound them. Sometimes the most loving thing you can say to a person is, what you're doing is sin, and I would encourage you to repent and turn to Jesus. That, that can be the most loving thing you can say to a person. In the Northwest, that, we, we don't necessarily love that. Okay, I've lived in the Northwest my whole life. We don't necessarily love that. Like We're, we're like, that makes me uncomfortable. Okay? I have some friends from the East Coast, from New York area, Philadelphia. Like They don't have that problem. Okay? They will tell you the truth. They will be like, okay, and you're like, all right. Hey, let's go to the other part of that passage, like in love. Okay? But here's the thing, we, we don't have a lot of people in our lives who will speak the truth to us in love, as defined by, as connected to scripture. A lot of the, the Christians I see that get swept up, that get, that get carried off into disastrous, ruinous doctrines are the nicest Christians I know. Why, why is that? Why are sometimes the nicest Christians, those who I see, get led astray most often. 
Because sometimes they're, they're, they're so busy trying to empathize and connect with and love that pretty soon that just gets defined for them and it looks like politeness. Pretty soon they're trying so hard to make that person feel good that they've forgotten the responsibility to speak the truth. Speak the truth in love. Be willing to look at your fellow Christian brothers and sisters and tell them the truth. Speak into their lives. Not simply because you want to prove how much you know or simply because you delight in being right. Because you love Jesus. And you want them to love Jesus. You want them to know the fullness of the life that was purchased for them at the cross. And you believe that there's actually more joy in obedience to Jesus than a rebellion against him. This is how the body of Christ will grow and mature. When your fellow Christians in this congregation are committed to speaking the truth in love to you and you are committed to speaking the truth in love to them, this is how you will mature. And scripture tells us if you don't want to be tossed about by every wave of doctrine, if you, if you don't want to be deceived by human cunning, if you don't want demonic lies and, and schemes to pull you away, speak the truth and love to one another. Church, your life is so much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, an obedient kid. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense. Something that was here before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity. He is transporting them into his kingdom and he is progressively changing them into the likeness of Christ. And he wants you to be a part of that. That is a vision for your life that will, that, that, that is a, a, a vision for your life that if you are committed to that, if you see the beauty and the joy that's in that, then that has to ripple out, that has to show up in the life of the church. Part of what it then looks like for you to speak the truth in love to other believers is, look, I see you chasing after something. I see you desiring something, and I'm worried that that is going to lead you to ruin. God has a better vision for your life than that. You have, as the church, the greatest and most loving, true news imaginable. You have the news of the gospel. Christ has given you, the church, the people of God, true news that is also loving. He has news that the things that, that people are chasing after, that they're looking for to, to fulfill them, to, to satisfy them, will never satisfy because they weren't designed that way. That's the truth. Right? Romans 1 says that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's the nature of idolatry. And so what you have, if you're a Christian, what you have is the truth that those are idols. You have truth that that is not how they were designed, and therefore every idol they follow, every idol they chase after, every idol that some of us as Christians chase after will ultimately disappoint us will ultimately 
fail us. We have the most loving news imaginable for us. That Jesus looked at lustful, prideful, selfish, envious men and women, and he went to the cross for them and said, I know exactly who I'm purchasing. I'm not surprised. I know exactly your sin, and you are the people that I've chosen to love. You are the people that I've chosen to represent me on the face of the earth. You are the people that, when assembled, are going to be a picture of my work. You are going to be a picture of the gospel on the face of the earth. Those people, us, you are going to represent Christ on the face of the earth. The most loving thing he can tell you is, there's no sin that you're going to commit that I haven't already paid for. I declared you righteous. I love you. You are forgiven. You are mine. And you will stay that way. That is loving news. I will never fail you. I will never disappoint you. The gospel isn't just for non-Christians. The gospel isn't just something that sort of gets you in the door of the church, that, that you just need to believe if you're a, not a Christian, you believe the gospel, you believe the truth about Jesus, you come in the doors of the church, and now everything else after that is just do a bunch of stuff. The gospel is something that we, the church, is meant to continue to apply to every area of your life until you understand that your primary identity is not husband, your primary identity is not wife, your primary identity is not parent or single person or whatever else. Your primary identity is in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. You are in Christ. He has identified you as his people. That's part of what it looks like to speak the truth and love to one another. If you want to see the church, not just numerically grow, but if you want to see the church grow in spiritual depth and maturity, if you want to see people move from childishness to mature manhood and womanhood, tell the gospel to one another. Help one another remember who you are in Christ. Speak the truth in love. This church, I, I was driving in today, and, and you are located in a really strategic area. You, you're right next to OSU, right? Every day, students there are being discipled. They're being discipled. Not necessarily follow Christ, but they are being discipled every day. They're being taught how to think. They're being taught how to, how to form a worldview. They're being taught how they ought to live their lives. They're being taught what it looks like to be a, a virtuous or a good person. Every day. They're, they're learning about their, their career field, and they're learning what to prioritize and what to care about and what it looks like to use their gifts and their talents and their intellect. They're being discipled. Every day. You guys are just across the street from me. You have an opportunity where you're at right here to be people that are committed to the gospel, that are committed to one another, and that are an outpost where people can come, students can come, families can come, hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and hear the most truthful, loving news on the face of the earth. I, I, I'm going to be praying for you, Branch Church. I want to say the Branch Church, but that sounds weird. Okay, I'm going to be praying for you, Branch Church. Because I think Jesus has you in this city, right? He determines the times and the places that we live. I think he has you in this place for a reason. I think he wants the truth of the gospel contrasted with whatever people are hearing outside in the raging storm of culture. 
What, what better place for that to happen than here? This church can be a place where the gospel is guarded, defended, believed by men and women who are committed to Christ and who are committed to one another. This church can be a bulwark against all of the, 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 the contrary forms of truth and all of the contrary ways we're supposed to be loving. But it's going to start with you guys knowing what it looks like to love and speak the truth to one another. Are you ready for that? given us the best news on the face of the earth. You've given us your glorious gospel. We as your people need help. Because the, the reality is that for many of us, although we desire to speak the truth in love, we're afraid. We care sometimes more about the opinions of others than we do your view of us about being obedient to you. And, and not just obedience, Lord. Sometimes we believe that our greatest joy is in hiding, and you've said our greatest joy is in proclaiming the truth about Christ. And so when we hide, when we are fearful, we are not just, just sort of neutrally acting toward you. We're ultimately saying, you don't know where my greatest joy would be found. Jesus, I pray that you would mature us as men and women. That we would grow up into Christ. That we would see the role that, that we play with one another. That, that my sanctification and, and, and my neighbor's sanctification, their sanctification is connected to my willingness to do what you have asked your people to do. That we will grow up into Christ as we are proclaiming and sharing and reminding one another of the gospel. Jesus, help this church, help, help every person in this church deepen in their love for Jesus. Help them be grounded in the gospel. Help them believe that speaking the truth in love is not only for their good, it's also for their joy. Holy Spirit, would you fill the men and women of this church? Would you empower them for all that you have called them to do? Lord, I know and believe that the enemy would see nothing more, would love to see nothing more than a church begin to drift, a church begin to chase after false doctrines, a church begin to care more about their individual needs than that of their, of their fellow believers and their neighbors. Lord, ground us in the truth of your gospel. Help us be mature men and women who reflect the good news to one another and to the world. We know we can only do that by your spirit and because of the work of Jesus. And so this is why we ask. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I put a hearty amen.